Welcome to episode 119 of the Blooms of Barnwells podcast, where we talk about all things written to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. And I'm Kelly. How are you doing today, Dermot? Good, thank you. Good. It's good to be back. You were mentioning we've kind of been on a, a little, not hiatus, but we, uh, you know, back recorded some of these and yeah. uh, we had a, a nice little jaunt up to Dublin maybe a week or so ago and yes. it's uh, it's good to be back in our studio which mm-hmm. is just our bedroom but um yeah are you raring to go is that how you describe your feeling right now yes <laughs> yes raring to go good all right well um if this is your first time tuning in welcome uh dermot is the resident artist for blooms and barnacles and for today's topic he's done some artwork of one of ulysses say minor characters but major in the eolus episode which Mm. we'll be covering today now i forget his name but he's some old timer getting sloshed in the pub uh downing a pint of porter and uh, reminiscing about 1798 because i see Mm -hmm. there's a shadow of uh, a pikeman on Mm -hmm. the wall behind him so it's like he's thinking of past glories does the name uh... miles crawford all right from the newspaper from the freeman's journal Yes. So he's the uh, the crumpled old editor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And we'll be spending some time with him today. Okay. And he's wearing a green tie, I mm-hmm. noticed. Is there any significance to that? Yeah, it's a color of the uh, United Irishman mm-hmm. who uh, fought against the uh, British in the 1798 rebellion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, vainly, as it turns out. All right. We talked somewhat about 1798 last time. Uh, we'll be talking about 1798 more this time quite a bit more, uh, but before we get into some memorable battles, I have a few shout-outs. Uh, first of all, thank you to everyone who supported us this month on PayPal and Patreon. Um, we really do appreciate it. If you'd like to become a regular subscriber at Patreon and get episodes early, get video versions, and a bonus episode each month, you can find us at patreon.com barnaclecast. Uh, to make a one-time donation, you can click on the donate button at the upper right-hand corner of our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com, and click the PayPal donation link. And we, again, greatly appreciate it all. If you are subscribed to our Patreon, this month we've got a brand new Patreon bonus out about Lizzie Twig, an even more minor character in Ulysses, but really her story is an interesting window, I think, into early 1900s um, literary scene in Dublin, what it was like to be a woman at that time, what it was like to be, I would say, literally, she was politically incorrect at that time, but not in the Bill Maher sense of the term. Mm. Um, and She I gets cancelled. She does get cancelled. Yeah, yeah. um, and, you know, how that shows up in Ulysses and what that has to do with James Joyce. And I am joined by an absolutely... Um, wonderful scholar named Elizabeth Foley O'Connor who wrote the article about Lizzie Twig. Um, and uh, it's a really fun conversation. And we talk a bit about Pamela Coleman Smith and tarot cards in it too. So it's a really fun chat and you can find that for as little as $5 a month at our Patreon. So check that out there. If you'd like to support us in a non-monetary fashion, leave a review on your favorite podcast app or tell a friend. You can sign up to our newsletter and get links to every month's content um, for free. Find that at bloomsandbarnacles.com. And you can follow us on social media. So Instagram and Facebook are good places to go. I think 
Twitter is probably on its last legs. I'm not going to pay for it. So if it changes to a paid model, uh, I won't see you there anymore. If you do follow me on Twitter, think about um, checking me out on Blue Sky. I have one follower there now, and it just says cat. <laughs> I got a notification that says cat followed you. It mm. might be this cat here. If you're watching the video, you can see her. Um, so, uh, and again, thanks to everyone who attended our live show in September at the uh, James Joyce Tower and Museum in Sandy Cove. It was a really great night and uh that we'll have that footage for you at some point in this feed um actually i can tell you when it'll be at the end of october because the book tales from the tower which is the recollections of uh, vivian veal igo and robert nicholson who were two longtime curators of the tower museum um is coming out on november 1st so if you just want to buy their book it will be available from all but fine booksellers both terrestrial and online from November 1st. So look for that. Tales from the Tower. Let's get into the, the text for this episode. Okay. All right. We are still covering Aeolus, which is Ulysses' seventh episode. And today's material will come from pages 127 through 129, uh, starting with the headline section, Memorable, Memorable Battles Recalled. And Dermot is going to remind us, since it's been a minute, what happened in the last one. Oh, why does she do this to me? <laughs> okay, the lads have been in the office mm-hmm. of the Freeman's Journal, mm-hmm. and they've been making fun of the windbag uh, writer. Mm-hmm. And I think they're all heading off for a pint, was the mm-hmm. last I, I seem to remember. That's exactly right. every time we read this stuff, I think, God, a pint would be nice. We mm-hmm. should go up to the inn up the road and have a pint. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's I have to like, nope, we're going to... Mm-hmm. Keep doing the podcast and the blog and all that. I mean, we do it for about an hour every two weeks. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, passes and I'm like, okay. There's some, there's some pint room in there too. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, no, the the end of the last segment we talked about is Ned Lambert asking Miles Crawford, the editor, will you join us? <laughs> and so our first headline section today is Miles's response to that question. Okay. So remember, this is in response to will you join us? Go ahead. Memorable battles recalled. North Cork militia, the editor cried, striding to the mantelpiece. We won every time. North Cork and Spanish officers. Where was that, Miles? Ned Lambert asked with a reflective glance at his toe caps. In Ohio, the editor shouted. So it was, big ad, Ned Lambert agreed. Passing out, he whispered to J.J. O'Malloy. Incipient jigs, sad case. Ohio, the editor crowed in high treble from his uplifted scarlet face. My Ohio. A perfect critic, the professor said. Long, short and long. Okay. All right, so Dermot, what do you think that's all about? <laughs> I don't know where Ohio comes from. Is it the American Civil War or something? Like, what okay. else could that be? I, I, I don't know where you get Ohio from. Like, he's talking about North Cork militia. We won every time. This is 1904, right? Mm-hmm. So it's before the War of Independence, um, where Cork did a lot of mischief uh, against the British. Um North Cork and Spanish officers. I mean, is that like the Armada? What's what's going on here? I have no idea. Okay. Well, I have, um, before I answer that question with an hour-long podcast episode, um, I have a little uh, comment I'd like you to read. So this is from uh, the book Surface and Symbol by famed Jewish scholar Robert M. Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what he says about this passage. It would be a shrewd dialectician indeed who would make much sense out of the editor's crowings about North Cork militia with Spanish officers in Ohio. Okay. 
Are you a shrewd dialectician? I, uh, I'm something. Um, I, well, I, I would say unlike, uh, Adams, when he wrote his book, I have access to the internet. So I don't, I don't know if I'm as shrewd anything, but I, um, I know how to use the internet. He didn't have the information superhighway. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, this is, this, let's, let's get into this. This is Crawford's response to Ned's question. Will you join us miles? And he responds North Cork militia. So it's not really a commitment either way. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ned Lambert kind of yes ands him through this conversation, if you notice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he says this whole thing about North Cork and Spanish officers. Ned Lambert says, where was that, Miles? In Ohio, right? So it was, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a, a, a classic yes and. What's a, a yes and In for a anyone? In stand-up comp comedy or uh, improv improv yeah if you put forward an idea that your uh, partner is meant to not shoot it down but mm-hmm. agree that it's canon and then build on it mm-hmm. yes because if, if you're improvising and uh i say look here we are in this mcdonald's mm-hmm. and you say we're not at mcdonald's we're on the street it, it's like jerk ass it's, it's hard it's just hard to make comedy out of that so mm-hmm. trust us because we're hilarious yeah, and his kind of final comment here in this passage, Ned's final comment. So it was, begad? Have you ever used the word begad? I have not. Have you ever heard anyone use it? I have not. Okay. Uh, it seems to have died out then, at least. Hmm. It's sort of a verbal pat on the head of, okay, Miles, okay. Yeah, I would say Crawford's response to this question is bombastic, exuberant, and totally nonsensical as we dig into it. And I think this sets Crawford up as another Mr. Deasy figure mm-hmm. of sort of this older gentleman um, who's kind of in charge of something and very concerned with history and politics. And Crawford and Deasy would be, as we'll see, kind of at opposing sides of the politics of the day. Mm-hmm. Deasy being a unionist, very pro-British. Crawford, as we see, is, I would say, more nationalist. Um, pro-Irish. We'll get into that as this entire chapter plays out. So mm-hmm. um, we'll leave it there for now. But he is very passionate about 1798, kind of. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Deasy would not be. I think he'd, lo- he'd love that act of union. And he'd think those rebels are a bunch of ne'er-do-wells. I would say the good thing about Crawford, though, is there's no anti-Semitism in, in his rantings, as far as I'm aware. Right. So... We don't have to talk about anti-Semitism. But we do have to talk about the North Cork militia. So um, real quick, we mentioned 1798 Rebellion. Could you give us a quick recap? Uh, what what was the 1798 Rebellion all about? Um, at the usual, tired of the uh, mm-hmm. oppression of the British Empire. Yep. Um, so it's, it's a mixture of uh, Anglo-Irish ascendancy aristocrats and uh, more working class Irish uh, peasantry mm-hmm. uh, who joined, had different uh, rebellions in different part of the country with different mm-hmm. degrees of success or failure, mm-hmm. ultimately betrayed, probably would have failed anyway. Um, and uh, yeah, no, they're interesting people because they would have looked more like the American 1776 crew. They came mm-hmm. out of the same kind of late enlightenment, John Lockean ideals, mm-hmm. um, rights a man kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So had they somehow by some miracle succeeded, Ireland would have been a very different place. Mm-hmm. Probably wouldn't have been partitioned between mm-hmm. North and South. Um, and yeah, the course of history would have been, at least for the United Kingdom, the UK wouldn't exist. Great Britain would, but the UK wouldn't. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, it's a, um, 
Yeah, one of those white what might have been. If yeah. you go back with the time machine with a few crates of AK-47s, you know, mm-hmm. but that's what it would have taken. Yeah, and we talked last time about how there really were two distinct groups, a more um, upper-class Anglo-Irish Protestant types. Mm-hmm. So that would be your Lord Edward Fitzgerald, yep. your Theobald Wolfe-Tone, both of whom, the rise and fall of whom, I should say, we talked about in our previous episode, the Sham Squire. Mm-hmm. So I'll be right behind this in your feed. And then there was a second uh, agrarian revolt, mainly in Wicklow, counties Wicklow and Wexford. I which is ancestors involved in that. Because mm-hmm. Arklow and Enniscorthy were my hometown and my mm-hmm. grandfather's hometown. So yeah, as far back on the family tree as that, you probably have a great, great, great grandfather mm-hmm. or granduncle who was getting involved in scallywaggery. Yeah, and a lot of the famous... Battles you hear about um, it, from that time, Vinegar Hill, mm-hmm. Enniscorthy, New Ross are all in, uh, they're all in Wexford. Mm-hmm. So, um, In Arklow Lore, all the fishermen went out that day to sail to, to go fishing because mm-hmm. they were like, F this, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not getting caught up in this. Mm-hmm. And my dad did a painting of it for the local historical society and he had all the little fishing ships out mm-hmm. in the sea. <laughs> yeah. As a yeah, and your, your hometown, Arklow, was site of a particularly... Battle of Arklow, yeah. It was yeah. Father Murphy. I was struggling to mm-hmm. find his name the last time we spoke about him. It's the Father mm-hmm. Murphy Monument on Main Street. Still mm-hmm. pointing with... Somebody's fingers got knocked off. But in mm-hmm. reality, it was his head was taken off by a cannonball. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it was the last stand, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. And we this, this will all be relevant before the end of this episode. So uh, that's the 1798 Rebellion. So when we say 1798, kind of as shorthand, that's what we're talking about. So how about that North Cork militia? It was indeed a real and very active militia in 1798. However, they were not quite as formidable as Crawford boasts. Shocker. Uh, It's possible that Crawford is revealing pride for his Cork roots in this little outburst. Uh, He's based on the real-life Evening Telegraph editor Patrick Mead, uh, who began his career in journalism on the Cork Herald. So it's kind of like a little Easter egg almost, a little nod to that. Later, in a later passage in Eolus, J.J. O'Malloy, the um, sort of disgraced lawyer, he cautions Crawford, uh, quote, your Cork legs are running away with you. So uh, there's some hometown pride mixed in there. It's possible that partisanship has kind of clouded Crawford's memory, uh, much like his unionist counterpart, Mr. Deasy, who I think we talked about his recollections of the, the orange lodges and all this other stuff and mm-hmm. the acts of union. Yeah, and basically he, every yeah. detail was wrong. He had very weird ideas about the orange lodge. Yeah. And uh, basically every idea was wrong yeah. will also apply to Mr. Miles Crawford. So they really are like these mirror images. Interject. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody who's interested in keeping up with an, uh, discussions between current day um, political activists who are into the orange and the north and all the rest of it. Sluggerotool.com oh, is a very okay. good website. The comments section are very unusual because you have you know, conversations mm-hmm. in the comments section between a lot of people on the orange and the green side. And it's very interesting to see because normally people we all go into our silos. So it's unusual when you find mm-hmm. a site where people are reasonably civil when you consider the, the stakes. Yeah. Um, and when you see people who are coming from a genuine unionist perspective, but you also have people who come from a Mr. DC perspective. There's a couple of comments. I won't name them, but there are a couple of DCs on there and it's a head wrecker. Like you just read some of the stuff they write and it's like, what planet are you living on? I don't know what world you live in. But anyway, I, I think okay. we, have, we probably have some on the other side as well, of course. Sure. People that are in the dreamland. All right. Let's get back to this yep, North back Cork to militia. Uh, they were not made out of 
corkmen, though, like you might think. They were just a territorial militia, so their name was taken from where they were stationed rather than who was fighting for them. They were loyal to the crown, and the North Cork militia actually took up arms against the rebels in 1798. Prior to the summer of 1798, invasion was expected along Ireland's west coast, you know, similar to Wolf Tone's failed invasion that we talked about last time. Uh, With the Eye of Sauron turned to the rugged Atlantic coast, the southeastern counties of Wexford and Wicklow were left loosely garrisoned with British soldiers. And so during that summer, following the capture and death of Fitzgerald, the United Irishmen in that region saw their chance taking up arms in revolt. Uh, between 4,000 and 5,000 rebels, mainly armed with pikes, which is a big stick with like a mm-hmm. pointy hook at the top, mm-hmm. overwhelmed 110 men of the North Cork Militia in battle at, is this Ullart? Ullart, I think. Ullart mm-hmm. Hill in Wexford. Mm-hmm. The Loyalist side, the North Cork Militia, were handily defeated, and the momentum of victory carried the United Irishmen forward, Next, winning a battle for control for the town of Enniscorthy. Mm-hmm. So this was like a famous win for them. They, you know, they it was a peasant revolt, and mm-hmm. they were initially very successful against the loyalist North, North Cork militia. So Crawford is completely turned around then. Uh, the North Cork militia actually lost a pivotal battle in... Uh, you know, counter to what he says, we won every time. Right. They notably did not win every time. Okay, so that's the North Cork militia. I'm just fighting for the wrong side anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so uh, that brings us to Ohio. What is Ohio? State in America. Where is it? Uh, Somewhere in America. (laughs) It's um, it's, uh, it's sort of on the east side of the country, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, It's north of North Carolina. It is. Um, does it have a coast? I don't think it does. I on Lake Erie on the Great Lakes. Oh, I don't. I mean, like the Atlantic. It's no, not no, the Atlantic definitely not. Yeah, yeah. Certainly. Um, I found after many years of living abroad that Ohio, Iowa, and Idaho are pretty clear to Americans what those are, but to anyone else, it's it's a mystery. It's a cloud. Yeah. Um, no, it's uh, it's next to like Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Okay. You know those when they stop people on the street and say, mm-hmm. "Find Ireland on the map," and they pick like australia i'd be i wouldn't be that bad oh i get it i get it within the circle but wouldn't be yeah wouldn't be accurate though those people would hate to stop me because i I do that i know everything (laughs) is so um ohio is even more perplexing in the situation because it really comes out of nowhere Mm -hmm. like as far as we know crawford or his real life counterparts don't have any connection to ohio Mm -hmm. um territorial militias didn't really serve outside of their home countries until the 1820s uh, and even then, they only served in Britain and Ireland. So I don't think the North Cork militia ever had the pleasure of visiting the great state of Ohio. Mm. Um, one guess about the Ohio outburst is that it could be, I'm really emphasizing could be, related to the 1755 invasion of the the, the French-held Ohio Valley by regiments that were once stationed in Cork. Mm-hmm. Not the North Cork militia, but they had a tenuous connection to Cork. Uh, however, those regiments had only a, like I said, a very loose connection to Ireland and about half of their men were recruited in North America. Uh, furthermore, the battle is in what is now Pennsylvania and not Ohio because the Ohio Valley refers not to the state, but to the river of the same name. Uh, if this is what Crawford is referring to, the section would be better titled Obscure Battles Recalled. 
I feel. Hmm. Crawford's real-life counterpart, Patrick Mead's brother James, lived in Ohio and died there in the 1890s. The reference to Spanish officers is a particular head-scratcher, as well as both the North Cork militia and the regiments that fought in 1755 were commanded by British men. No Hmm. Spanish officers to be had. Yeah, and I mean, like, the Spanish Armada did wreck off the west coast of Ireland, you know, which also kind of happened to Wolftone's fleet, but that was in the 1500s, and it was in Mayo and Galway, and not really in Cork, Hmm. but uh, I I don't know what the Spanish officers are about. Yeah, and uh, the Ohio, a bit of a mystery, too, why he's saying Ohio, so... Hmm. um, I think Robert Adams is correct. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what incipient jigs are? Ned Lambert accuses Miles of experiencing incipient jigs. It's a jig like a alcohol-related spasm yeah. or something? Yes. Yeah. 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 So Miles Crawford, despite his Aeolian position as Lord of the Windy Journalists, seems to be slipping a little. Hmm. Uh, as the editor is cackling about Ohio and the North Cork militia. Yeah, Ned Lambert mutters this remark incipient jigs to J.J.O. Malloy in their annotation of Ulysses. Gifford and Seidman note that in this case, jigs refers to what they call a, quote, in- inconsistent mental processes of advanced alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Uh, incipient would mean it's kind of just starting to show. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to Joyce scholar Adams, he diagnoses Crawford as being in the late stages of mental decay made clear in the barking incoherence of his speech, unquote, which he has a similar diagnosis for Mr. D.C. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, in many ways, they are mirrors of one another on opposite ends of that political spectrum. We don't have anybody in politics today that would sound like that. Nope. Really. So therefore, we don't need to talk about them. Um, what we do need to talk about is this phrase that Professor McHugh utters, a perfect critic. A critic? Yeah, critic. It sounds like a mixture of cretin and critic. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, it's, it has to do with poetic rhythm. Okay, okay. so it's critic. Right. It's like, okay, yeah. it's, it's a literary term. Mm-hmm. All right. It's not clear why Crawford would make any, any of these connections or bring up any of these details in the context of Aeolus, mm-hmm. um, because they just mentioned the Sham Squire. We, uh, you know, we can kind of move into some 1798 territory and there's some of that that comes back around. Obviously the North Cork militia played a role in that conflict as well. Um, scholars have worked very hard to connect these dots, but it's hard for me to really see any significance apart from any just dot connecting in these details I've laid out. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is supposed to make sense. That's why we can't make sense of it. It's not supposed to make sense. I think this exchange is fulfilling a social function amongst these men rather than an intellectual one. Crawford's friends likely know that he is full of shite and onions, as Simon Dedalus would say. Mm-hmm. So they're just kind of like, this is part of the banter. They're goofing off yeah. and they're kind of, la- I'd say, laughing at him more than with him. Like In a later section, Crawford al- also fudges the date of the Phoenix Park murders. And that would be a major event that he would not only occurred in living memory, but at the height of his journalistic career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he should know that. It would be like saying, you know, 9-11 happened in 2002, mm-hmm. if you're an American. I think they just enjoy winding him up because he doubles down, even when he's saying something really ridiculous and the, result, the results are funny. Yeah. Crawford's absurd declamation could have just as easily been ignored. But yeah, Ned Lambert kind of eggs him on. Where was it, Miles? Where was that, Miles? You can imagine the other men 
mimicking Crawford's Ohio once he's out of earshot. <sighs> Lambert whispers to JJO Malloy about incipient jigs, which is often taken to mean that he has destroyed his mind with booze, and that's why he's serving up word salad. If this is the case, it's a bit cruel. Yeah. But it's not you know far though. Boys will be boys, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So we haven't answered this bit about the perfect critic. Crawford, for his part, we think is actually choosing to express himself in song here, uh, when he says "Ohio, my Ohio." Uh, the ever assiduous John Simpson at the website James Joyce Online Notes has tracked down a song from the early 20th century called "Ohio, my Ohio," and apparently there were a lot of like state songs set to this tune, which I should say is set to the tune of O Tannenbaum, mm -hmm. or you have a communist song. The Red Flag. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which... flinch and traitors near will keep the red flag flying. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it'd be Ohio, my Ohio. Okay. So long, short, long. Ohio, mm -hmm. my Ohio. You want to sing your communist one again? No, I've already done it. <laughs> That is a what's called a, a, a critic. So it's a metrical foot in poetry with stress long, short, long, as McHugh notes. Hmm. Oh, hi, oh. Right? Mm -hmm. Long, short, long. Mm -hmm. That's it. So he's singing the song. That's it. Uh, yeah, McHugh, despite his odd disheveled character, which we'll explore in more depth in a future episode, uh, he is also in on the jokes at Crawford's expense. Mm. So he's just talking nonsense. It's not supposed to make sense because right. he's, it's just like ramblings from his booze-addled mind. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that that's it. So you can uh, agree or disagree with me. Send me an email or leave a comment. <laughs> okay. Our next section. Oh, Harp Aeolian. He took a reel of dental floss from his waistcoat pocket and breaking off a piece, twanged it smartly between two and two of his resonant unwashed teeth. Bing bang, bang bang. Mr. Bloom, seeing the coast clear, made for the inner door. Just a moment, Mr. Crawford, he said. I just want to phone about an ad. He went in. What about that leader this evening? Professor Mayhugh asked, coming to the editor and laying a firm hand on his shoulder. That'll be all right, Miles Crawford said more calmly. Never you fret. Hello, Jack. That's all right. Good day, Miles. J.J. O'Malloy said, letting the pages he held slip limply back on the file. Is that Canada swindle case on today? The telephone whirred inside. 28, no, 20, double four, yes. Okay. What do you get out of that one? Yeesh. Um, some stuff, but some of it's mm -hmm. cryptic. So I didn't know the dental flossing went back that far. I thought it was a mm. more recent uh, invention. Mm. Resonant unwashed teeth. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, just a moment, Mr. Crawford. He said, a phone about an ad. So Bloom is doing some more mm -hmm. like advertising uh, push. Yeah. Um, back and forth, hand on the shoulder. Uh, so JJ O'Malloy's name is Jack, I assume. Mm -hmm. Jack O'Malloy. Um, now, the Canada swindle case. No idea what that is. And I don't know why the telephone whirring inside has anything to do with the Canada case. So. It doesn't. That's Bloom calling Alexander Keyes. Oh, I see. It's in the yeah. background. Right, mm -hmm. right. It didn't make a note about the Canada swindle case. So I'm just going to leave that out. All right. All, All right. right. You see, I marked it red to look it up and I forgot. Oh, okay. So let's just leave it out. Okay. Um, the main thing I want to talk about in this is the harp Aeolian, mm -hmm. right? Aeolian refers to... Aeolus, the windbag god. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
and that's that's a direct reference to the the Homeric reference in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, a harp. What is a harp a symbol of? A harp. Yeah. A symbol of well, yeah. Ireland. It's a single oh, the, the United okay. Irishmen. They had the green flag. That's and the harp. right. They did mm-hmm. in 1798. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So that all right. So, like we said, uh, Miles Crawford is singing his Ohio, my Ohio, and then. Uh, McHugh, Professor McHugh, accompanies him on the harp. Okay. What is the harp composed of here? Well, the harp Aeolian. Uh, I don't Not in real life in, in this passage. Uh, See, so he takes out some dental floss. Oh, okay. And then he yeah. bangs. Yeah. Yeah, okay. He, he breaks off a piece and twanged it smartly. So okay. he pulls it between his teeth and then goes, bing, 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 bang, bing, bing. Oh, no. Okay, That's I get disgusting. it. disgusting. I get it. <laughs> Ding, 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 ding. So yep. he's playing the red flag on his dental floss. Yeah, yeah. Bits of his teeth. Yeah. Plaque going everywhere. Uh, whatever Crawford is up to, man, flossing your teeth in the middle of an office is really gross. Mm. Seems like the greater faux pas to me than just being a little scatterbrained. Yeah. Uh, so this disgusting harp twangs amidst the talk about battles fought for the freedom of the nation of Ireland which is symbolized by the harp. So it's, uh, what's the political version of being blasphemous? Without treasonous, maybe? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is, I'd say, the uh, the political equivalent of Buck Mulligan's blasphemous mass, where mm-hmm. he's using his, you know, razor blade and shaving foam instead of, right. you know, religious items. This is the mocking of a, a nationalistic symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know that word, leave it in the comments. And I would say if Crawford is a sham squire, McHugh is a sham bard turning the symbol of the nation mm-hmm. into a bit of rubbish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel angry? Is, is your is your does that get your dander up at all? As a no high rents do. <laughs> there you go. Good for you. Okay, you ready for the next section? Yeah, yeah. Spot the winner. Lanahan came out of the inner office with sports tissues. Who wants a dead cert for the gold cup? He asked. Scepter with O, madden up. He tossed the tissues onto the table. Screams of newsboys barefoot in the hall rushed near and the door was flung open. Hush, Lenahan said. I hear feet stoops. Professor McHugh strode across the room and seized a cringing urchin by the collar as the others scampered out of the hall and down the steps. The tissues rustled up in the draft, floated softly in the air, blue scrawls, and under the table came to earth. It wasn't me, sir. It was the big fella shoved me, sir. Throw him out and shut the door, the editor said. There's a hurricane blowing. Lenin began to paw the tissues up from the floor, grunting as he stooped twice. Waiting for the racing special, sir, the newsboy said. It was Pat Farrell shoved me, sir. He pointed the two faces peering in around the doorframe. Him, sir. Out of this with you, Professor McHugh said gruffly. He hustled the boy out and banged the door too. J.J. O'Malloy turned the files crackingly over, murmuring, seeking. Continued on page six, column four. Yes. Evening telegraph here. Mr. Bloom phoned from the inner office. Is the boss? Yes. Telegraph. To where? Aha. Which auction rooms? Aha. I see. Right. I'll catch him. Okay. Comments. And thank so, you for reading. Yeah. I like the uh, casual cruelty to the children. Mm-hmm. And I think too, you know, it's obviously, oh, the boys are kind of being loud and annoying and they're mm-hmm. angry at them. From the boys' point of view, they must think they are interrupting some important business. Mm-hmm. But they are interrupting a whole lot of nothing. Nothing. Yeah. 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 Windbags. Yeah. yeah. 
And there's a lot of wind imagery in this passage in particular, too. There's a hurricane blowing and mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. tissues blowing in the air and whatnot. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Um, so, yeah, so they're just getting a tip on a horse. That's it, yeah. Yeah, the Ascot Gold Cup, which is the big horse race that day. Yeah, okay. You remember Bloom meeting Bantam Lions mm-hmm, back mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, Lotus Eaters, and he, he has the whole bit with the throwaway. Yeah. Throwaway the throw horse. Throwaway, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and he wins, right? Like throw He does, and he's dark horse. Lenahan yeah. thinks Scepter's going to take it all. You'll see other passages where there's an, another horse called Zinfandel, but I think Scepter in particular is the uh, is kind of the shoe win. Everybody thinks so. Mm. All these guys are betting on Scepter, right? And then Throwaway actually wins, mm. and they all think that Bloom gave a tip to mm, Lions, right. and that's where we'll we'll return to that in Cyclops. Yep. a long time from now, but. And uh, yeah, this is the first time we meet Lenahan. Before we get into him, uh, we see Bloom at the bottom. He's phoning, is the boss. So it, he calls Alexander Key's business. They're like, oh, he's at the, what turns out to be Dylan's auction rooms, which are in Bachelor's Walk, which is very, very close to the Freeman's Journal office. So it's mm-hmm. basically a block away and he's going to run over there and try to catch him. Right. So uh, that's that. So let's talk Lenahan. He's just shown up. What do you know about Lenahan so far? Nothing. He seems unremarkable so far. Mm-hmm. I would say Lenahan is, and if you disagree with me, you feel free to defend him. But this is, uh, he's about to get raked over the coals. <laughs> Lenahan is perhaps the most obnoxious character in all of the Joycean extended universe. Mm. He originates as one of the two titular gallants in the Dubliner story, Two Gallants. The other gallant, Corley, will pop up in the Eumaeus episode of Ulysses to squeeze a half-crown out of bruised and battered Stephen Dedalus. So they're two really quality gents. Lenahan has roots in the real world, but we'll start by looking at his appearance in Two Gallants because he's kind of the star of the show of that, and it really shows us a lot about his character, and it shows a far more sinister side of him as a character. Uh, it's also worth noting, I'm not the only person who hates Lenahan. He's listed in the index of Stuart Gilbert's Ulysses a Study as Lenahan, comma, Parasite. Ooh, okay. So yeah, he sucks. In any case, Two Gallons tells the story of these two rascally rogues convincing a servant girl to hand over a gold coin to Corley. Uh, whether it's her personal savings or the property of her employer, we never really find out. But as Corley works a sort of lover boy romantic rift on this uh, young woman off screen, we follow Lenahan as he waits for Corley to return with his ill-gotten spoils. And Lenahan spends his time eating peas and thinking about how he'd like to be rich uh, and marry a rich woman and about the opportunities that would, uh, all the opportunities that have passed him by. So, um... Uh, Florence Walzo points out that the political allegory of two gallants um, shows how Corley and Lenahan act as a, a further allegory of the elements of Irish society that prey upon the weak. Mm-hmm. Um, Lenahan represents a part of the Irish population who are either, quote, too insensible to realize Ireland's servitude or too indolent to do anything to protect and support Ireland. Mm. Uh, Lenahan. Uh, longs for a traditionally comfortable life, good job, a home of his own, stability, but is unable or unwilling to put in the work to attain either. Lenahan's failure shouldn't be regarded as the failure of the individual, though. Much of Joyce's writing focuses on the stagnation and lack of opportunity in Ireland in this era. Lenahan struggles 
are kind of the same that drives Stephen to leave Ireland eventually and James Joyce by extension. As Stephen tells Cranley in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, quote, when the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion, I shall try to fly by those nets. So Lenahan and most of these other men are trapped in a similar conundrum. Mm. But uh, unlike Stephen, Lenahan has not been motivated by the societal paralysis to forge in the smithy of his soul, the uncreated consciousness of his race. Instead, he becomes kind of a scammer and a grifter and it has made him bitter and cynical. It's the same paralysis that grips all the men in the funeral carriage in Hades. Um, it grips all the men in the evening telegraph office. It's a thing Stephen wants to escape most of all. And in any case, if you now feel empathy for Lenahan and you want a reason to hate him beyond his stupid puns and kind of sponger qualities, go read Two Gallants because he's so awful. Um, he's far less insidious in Ulysses. He's mostly just a shameless attention seeker. He's constantly interrupts like a small child to share his aforementioned riddles and limericks, but he is a sponger mm. is often how he's described. So we'll, we'll see this as we go forward. You know, there are a million examples in Aeolus if you're looking for them. Uh, he's based on a real person, a well-known sports journalist and friend of Joyce's father called Michael Hart. Lenahan's name is probably based on Matthew Linehan, uh, sometimes also spelled Lenahan, an I to an E, who's an Irish Times reporter. Uh, Michael Hart is listed by name in Ithaca in Ulysses in the same list of the, the recently departed as Matthew F. Kane and Patrick Dignam. It says Michael Hart, Phthisis, Matter Misericordia Hospital, it is P-H-T-H-I-S-I-S. He did indeed die young of this disease, which is also called pulmonary tuberculosis and much easier to pronounce, though Hart died in the Jervis Street Hospital, if you're keeping track of that sort of detail. He was known for many of the similar quirks that Lenahan has. Uh, he loves wordplay. Like he says, I hear feet stoops instead mm -hmm. of footsteps. Yeah. Uh, I have to find that really annoying. <laughs> Uh, Hart loved to speak in little bits of French, earning him the nickname Monsart, short for Monsieur Hart. And he had a love for the horses that's also shared by Lenahan here. He worked as a writer for the racing paper Sport, which is mentioned in this passage. Oh. He was a snappy dresser, later pursuing a career in law. And he didn't seem to possess any of Lenahan's darker impulses. So that's good. Um, so like J.J. O'Malloy, Lenahan isn't meant to be a perfect biographical sketch of Hart per se, but like O'Malloy's real-life counterpart, his life was cut short by illness when he was at his height. And John Simpson once again writes on James Joyce online notes. Michael Martin Hart was one of a substantial group of journalists who did not survive or barely survived into the 20th century. That Joyce was conscious of time washing over the dead of his city is evidenced by the list of recently departed in which he includes Mick Hart. Yeah, so I, I think he was a decent person. I don't know why he gets mm. immortalized as a garbage person, <laughs> but Joyce was not fair. Mm. It's, I have nothing more to say than that. Um, so that's Lenahan. Mm. Um, so you get a little bit of empathy for him here. I'm basically just going to hate on him in every future appearance of him. He is petty and un deeply unfunny and misogynistic mm -hmm. and... 
has a very clever way to bum cigarettes off everyone in the office, mm. uh, as we'll see in a future passage. But that's not for today. That's a story for another time. And we have one last passage. And this one we get to talk about music. A collision ensues. The bell whirred again as he rang off. He came in quickly and bumped against Lenehan, who was struggling up with a second tissue. Pardon, monsieur, Lenehan said, clutching him for an instant and making a grimace. My fault, Mr. Bloom said, suffering his grip. Are you hurt? I'm in a hurry. Knee, Lenehan said. He made a comic face and whined, rubbing his knee. The accumulation of the anno domini. Sorry, Mr. Bloom said. He went to the door and holding it ajar paused. J.J. O'Malloy slapped the heavy pages over. The noise of two shrill voices, a mouth organ, echoed in the bare hallway from the newsboys squatted on the doorsteps. We are the boys of Wexford who fought with heart and hand. And right. I'm, I'm making up a tune. Yeah. Thoughts on that? No, no, it's clear. Yeah. Okay. Then I'm doing his little comic bit. And what's Bloom's faux pas here? Bloom uh, makes a, a bump, social faux pas. Does he bump into it? He bumps into Lenahan. So, uh... The bell heard again as he rang off. He came in quickly and bumped against... So he is Bloom. He came in quickly, bumped against Lenehan, who was struggling up with the second tissue. What's the second tissue exactly? Look, the tissues are the pages of the sports paper. Oh, I see. Like yeah. a page. It sounds like a... Yeah. Like but it would be a, a thin paper, right? I see. It's just like a basic, like he bumped into somebody. It doesn't sound too bad. But Lenehan's trying to do a bit with him. Yeah. He does his French thing, which we mentioned that was... Pardon something Mick Hart did. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. uh, Bloom goes, oh, my fault. Are you hurt? I'm in a hurry. Like, he's all he's thinking about is keys. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Lenahan's trying to do a bit with him. And he goes, oh, knee. And then he makes his comic face. He whines. Goes, oh, you know, I'm getting so old. Mm-hmm. And Bloom goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And then, like, completely earnest. And then, and mm-hmm. then uh, he goes to the door. And then he basically leaves. Mm-hmm. The next section is called Exit Bloom, I believe. So Lenahan tries to do a bit with him. Mm-hmm. Bloom doesn't get that he's doing a bit yeah. he's completely sincere and then he just leaves right so what's the faux pas didn't yes and him yeah oh yeah and so they just they see bloom is kind of overly serious and earnest and he's not really funny he's not mm. he's not yes he's, he's not good crack yeah 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 he's too serious or too mm. business oriented because yeah. they're all just fapping off mm-hmm. in the and bloom is actually yeah. working let's note that too is these guys are doing nothing yeah they're trying. They're trying to figure out where to place their bed. They're doing mm-hmm. nothing, and Bloom is busy because he's working. Yeah, he's not on the same time schedule as they are because they're yeah. all in the office. They're on the same beat, and he can't be. Yeah. But yeah, it's this very subtle faux pas. Mm-hmm. He's just like someone like Lenahan. He wants to be a comedian, but he's not funny. Yeah. He desperately wants you to engage with him like he's very funny. Like that's I think important yeah. to him. Yeah. And Bloom and Bloom does not have any pretense that he doesn't think he's funny. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't have the, you know, he, he doesn't just kind of roll with it a little bit. He's yeah. just all business. Yeah. And we'll, we'll see how that continues to play out as the book unfolds. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to turn now to the song that the Newsies are singing, uh, The Boys of Wexford. Do you know the song? I don't know. It does, it's about 1798, and it dates to 1798. So the lines included here in Eolus, and uh, I've got a couple of... Uh, Recordings and that I will email you the links too, so you can drop them in here. The lines included here in Eolus are the first half of the chorus. The chorus in full is We are the boys of Wexford who fought with heart and hand to burst in twain the galling chain and free our native land. Yeah. It's a catchy song. If you listen to it like I did in preparing this, you will have it stuck in your head for weeks. The boys of Wexford tells the victory of the rebels at Ullard, but 
also of the rebels' last stand at Vinegar Hill, where they were ultimately defeated. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some versions of the song, the final stanza goes like this. My curse upon all drinking, it made our hearts full sore. For bravery won each battle, but drink lost evermore. And if for want of leaders we lost at Vinegar Hill, we're ready for another fight and love our country still. So what do you take from that? That their leaders were drunk as mm-hmm. F. Yeah. And probably they had mm-hmm. a few victories, got a bit cocky, thought they were un- unbeatable, mm-hmm. and failed to remember they were up against one of the most ruthless and adaptable mm-hmm. military forces the world has ever seen, the British Empire. Yeah. So if you listen to John McCormick's version, it goes like this. Um, John McCormick was a singer with whom mm-hmm. Joy- Joyce shared the stage in 1904. I think this would be the version of the song known to the characters in Ulysses. Mm-hmm. So there's a, an implicit warning here to the gentleman celebrating the 1798 rebels. And what is the warning? What's going to do them in? Their booze. Yeah. So the song kind of says that booze is what did in the rebellion. Mm-hmm. And here are these nationalists sitting around. I can't half remember the rebellion because booze has wrecked their minds and their careers and everything else. So I listened to maybe a half a dozen or so versions of The Boys of Wexford in preparation for this episode. Very easy to find on YouTube if you're looking for it. Um, Lots of great versions. Um, Most of the later versions, though, such as the the Wolf Tones, if you're not familiar with the the band The Wolf Tones, you are not on Irish Twitter. Uh, they have been in the news lately. Mm-hmm. Um, we we can talk. Do we want to talk about that? Why not? Yeah. The, so the Wolf Tones are a, a band from the '60s. I would say they they've been around mm. a good long while, and um, there's a big music festival in Ireland every summer called Electric Picnic, and they were the biggest act at Electric Picnic this summer. Yeah, 2023 as we talk. Yeah. Now. We're going to talk about their version of the Boys of Wexford here, but they have another song. Is is it Celtic Symphony or Celtic Symphony? Celtic. I think it's hard yeah. to see in this And it, that song is very controversial the last year or two in Ireland mm. because it's it's had a resurgence in popularity. And what is the... the... It has an earworm chant, ooh, uh, up the ra, the mm. ra being the IRA. And I'm yeah. not talking about an, an investment retirement account. Mm. Um, it's the Irish Republican Army. So, uh, yeah, it's understandably made some mm-hmm. people kind of cranky. Yeah. Um, fair enough. But some people kind of overdid the crankiness a little bit and made fools of themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly, a convenient young, political football. Young I people think. sing because they know it'll piss off the olds. Yeah. And the wolf. T- it's amazing that the wolf tones would be a group that you do associate with a um, <laughs> uh, very different uh, you know, time, mm-hmm. you know, like. Our lads with beards singing folk yeah. songs, and here you have all these young people mm-hmm. like lapping it up. It's yeah, and uh, the famous sketch with Steve Coogan um, on the Alan Partridge show, yes, on, on back in 2020. Come out, you black and tan, come and fight me like a man. Show your wife how you want medals down in Flanders. Tell her how the IRA made you run like hell away, and the green and lovely lanes of Kilmish Kamachi Black and Tans, which is also a Wolf Tones another song. Wolf Tones song, which yeah. the Wolf Tones have turned into like powerful plutonium. That, the Wolf plutonium. Tones were like number one in the, the Irish charts yeah. when that was when that Steve Coogan sketch came mm. out. Yeah, it coincided with the general election, and it did mm-hmm. Sinn Féin no harm. They won most more votes than any other party. Yeah, because then you had the then Taoiseach or Prime Minister of Ireland Leo Varadkar commemorating the Black and Tans that same year, yeah. I think, or like very close. The to Irish that. government was doing Black and Tans commemorations, so. 
It yeah. was a very strange four weeks. So the wolf tones remain relevant, hmm. um, which is great for them. I couldn't couldn't be happier for them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, there's something there's something interesting about the image of these young people singing this song from memory about the previous rebellion. Hmm. Well, there there are other there are a lot of rebellions, but the last very big rebellion, 1798. And then um, young people today singing Ooh Ah Up the Ra about mm-hmm. the last big rebellion. I'm reminded of the Savage Eye sketch, Mick the Bold Daily. Mm-hmm. We couldn't beat the British on the field of battle with rifles, grenades. But we beat them with rebel songs. We beat the fucking Jesus <laughs> out of them with rebel songs. The British stole our land and stole our home. very upset when people sing the rebel songs to be fair um again it's a it's a convenient political football i think for a lot of people in the news it's uh you know mm. it's good for clicks and eyeballs and things like that but um i do want to talk about the wolf tones version of the boys of wexford um because the their version alters the final stanza now the wolf tones did not do this themselves i i'm not quite sure where that change comes in but it's somewhere between john mccormick and the wolf tones um, and they remove those final lines about how drink upended the rebels' efforts, mm-hmm. uh, despite their bravery and patriotism, and they changed it to this. And Ulrich's name shall be their shame, whose steel we ne'er did fear, for every man could do his part like Forth and Shelmalier. For if want of leaders we lost at Vinegar Hill, we're ready for another fight and love our country still. Okay. So... The- yeah, it's a, a little bit different. So this is the Wolf Tones. This version? is yeah, and and really, it's their version in any current uh, version you'd hear. Right. So we don't pin it too much on them, but um, hmm. I I want to say they kind of repopularized it in the '60s. And by the '60s too, the troubles were gearing up. Depending on what year it's written in, the troubles might mid '60s. I have in my they notes. weren't kicking off yet, but yeah. there was still border trouble and the mm-hmm. Nelson's Pillar had blown up. And yeah, this, this would be pre Nelson's Pillar. Okay, but you yeah. did, people, anybody on the Republican side would have known this. Yeah, this powder keg. There's a big know. revival in folk music overall in this time. This is when the Clancy Brothers and yeah. Tommy Maycomb came out, came about, wearing their Aaron sweaters on. Right. Ed Sullivan and or in the, in yeah. the US you have Phil Oaks and Bob Dylan mm-hmm. yeah name and, them in that order too yeah, yeah and in in Britain too there's a big folk revival yeah. in the 60s and, yeah you know all right Bob Dylan in the US as well I know you don't like Bob Dylan but he's a major folk singer mm. yeah <laughs> you'll allow right. that yeah, he's all right so anyway I think those lines about drink spoiling the grand plans of Irishmen are meant as a warning to the men in the telegraph office as I said um, yeah, it's, it's, alcohol has been the downfall of most of the men in this episode and the one previous, mm-hmm. even young Stephen, who once planned to forge in the smithy of his soul, the uncreated consciousness of his race mm-hmm. will today squander his salary on a round of drinks with these newsmen. As we'll see, the one who is kind of flown by those nets seems to be one Mr. Leopold Bloom. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, the stagnation of Irish culture is a major theme throughout Ulysses, and alcohol is often the culprit. Uh, alcohol is the cause of Crawford's incipient jigs that make him think that North Cork militia actually won at Ullard Hill. The glory of memorable battles is recalled, but not the substance. And someone, we, we know that someone won something and that it was great, and therefore, by extension, we are great. Mm. All right. Or they. I, I don't think I'm included in, in the the Irish folks. Uh, the image of these men hanging out, shirking their duties, and sneaking out for a midday liquid lunch stands in contrast to the two patriotic visions of Ireland laid out so far in this episode. Right? Uh, the awe-inspiring grandeur of Ireland's natural beauty in Dan Dawson's overwrought speech and the heroic, if tragic, rebels fighting for freedom in the boys of Wexford. So, Zach Bowen in his book, Musical Illusions, in the works of James Joyce, points out that, quote, The saviors of Ireland, the gentlemen of the press, are losing their battle for old Aaron, just as the boys of Wexford did, and for some of the same reasons. And then Bowen goes on to cast a similar judgment on the newsboys outside of the office, stating, The boys that sing the songs today will be tomorrow's frequenters of the Dublin bars. Any thoughts? Mm, no. Mm. All right. Do we have time for one more story of a memorable battle? Why not? All right. This Can't is the... The yeah. Battle of New Ross. What's the Battle of New Ross? Doesn't ring a bell at all. It's a major battle in 1798. Uh, yeah. All right. It was a uh, you know you think of all the the pikemen going up against down the... more near like Waterford. Stuff. Yeah, it would be in Wexford. Yeah, you're going yeah. to Wexford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go over a little bit mm-hmm. close to where Kennedy's homeland was too. I yeah. think his near New yeah. Ross area. His whole family yeah. would probably be around that. Mm-hmm. You know, like a cloud around that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, We'll go forward a little bit in history to 1909 when a shipment of antiquities arrived in Canada from Fenton and Sons Old Curiosity Shop in London. Um, And I didn't include it here, but I have actually a receipt of the transaction I'm going to explain. So I'll make make sure I get that to you. Uh, The first item on the manifest was listed as, quote, bronze sword with hide grip taken at New Ross, County Wexford, Ireland, in the Rebellion of 1798. Yeah, I know where this is going. A certifiably curious item. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I told you the story. Pretend for our listeners like I haven't told you the story several times. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay. It's amazing. So let's try it again. Certifiably curious item. Mm-hmm. Where could this be going? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> uh, the sword in time made its way to the Royal Ottawa Museum in Canada, where it was examined by archaeologist Francis Pryor in the 1980s. So we're way ahead in history. Francis Pryor from Time Team. From Time Team. What, yeah. Do you, so if you're a fan of the long-running Channel 4 archaeology series Time Team, Francis Pryor's name probably rings a bell. Mm-hmm. He's a very celebrated um, archaeologist, uh, specifically of Bronze Age archaeology. Mm-hmm. And he um, is a very, I would say kind of quirky and flamboyant character in the show. Mm. Um, But he is actually um, a really prominent scholar of of Bronze Age, in particular with the, like, finding all those trackways in the flag fen in Britain. Yeah. Uh, He's really an interesting person. So um, Francis Pryor, yeah, he is on TV. He made a major discovery (laughs) of Bronze Age sites. Yes. Yeah, yeah. made his name, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. flag fen was his. So... Mm -hmm. Pryor examined the sword and determined that the only part of it not original was the hide grip and that it showed signs of recent use, uh, as in more recent than the Bronze Age. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Pryor found it credible that the roughly three to four thousand year old sword could have been carried into battle in New Ross in 1798. Mm-hmm. Um, so to put that into perspective, the sword is possibly around the same age as Homer's Odyssey. Right. And um, similar swords tend to be found submerged in bogs. Exactly why people did that in the Bronze Age is not known, but they're thought to be it's um, you're making an offering of a very valuable item mm-hmm. in order to get some favor from spirits or gods or yeah. you know, the people in this time were pre-literate. They didn't write anything down, so we can only guess. Like I said, similar sor- swords will be found submerged in bogs where the anaerobic conditions preserve the swords for millennia. Mm-hmm. So conceivably, the sword was found while cutting turf and taken home. And hung up on the wall. Mm-hmm. And uh, look, ain't this neat? And then when the countryside rose in rebellion, the sword's 18th century owner decided to put it to use, marching to battle with the pikemen at New Ross, besides his friends and neighbors. Took it out one, one more time yeah. in 1798, thousands of years later. I mean, we'll never know for sure, but I can't shake the vision of a young man brandishing a Bronze Age sword. <laughs> In the heat of battle, that one last time in 1798. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Any thoughts? No, no. It's excellent. All right. So that's uh, Ohio and the North Cork Militia mm-hmm. and a Bronze Age sword for good measure. So uh, thanks for listening. Send us an email if you have any thoughts. And uh, we'll see you again in two weeks. All right. See you then. Take care. Bye. Armored cars and tanks and guns came to take away our sons, but every man should stand behind the men behind the wire. Come on, Simon! Armored cars and tanks and guns came to take away our sons, but every man should stand behind the men behind the wire. Ah, that was grand, that. Yeah, that. Mighty. Double O feckin' bollocks. Oh, my God, that was like an advert for the IRA. Who are we going to blame? Find out who booked them and sack them.